You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Sometimes a parent's financial advice may be annoying at the time that it's given, but wise children who listen and follow that advice can skip many years of struggle. That's exactly what happened to a former Silicon Valley tech expert. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Our guest today listened to his dad and agreed to buy a piece of property in San Jose back in the 90s. Well, you can probably guess where that led him. With the appreciation from that one investment, he was able to launch a full-time real estate career, and he's got some great stories to tell about that. Paul Fogarty is here to share the ups and downs of owning various kinds of properties from single-family homes to condos to multifamily and commercial in California and in other states. So, Paul, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for having me. You bet. So I love to interview our listeners and members of Real Wealth and people who have been investing in real estate to help our listeners learn from those who have been there before. So I'm really happy to have you on today. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. So let's start with how you got started in real estate and and what you were kind of doing before that. Well, I worked in tech because I'm here in Silicon Valley, and I got started because my father pretty much pushed me to buy a property, which I didn't want to buy at the time because I had just come to Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. and I ended up getting it anyway, and (laughs) that was a large single-family Victorian house, which I ended up converting into a rooming house. Oh, how'd you do that? So it had six bedrooms when I bought it. Actually, it had five. And then I converted the dining room and the living room into two more bedrooms. And then I rented it mostly to students because it was about a block away from San Jose State. Nice. And I had no prior experience. So I just... (laughs) (laughs) Were you living there as well and just renting rooms out? Yeah, actually, I was not living there. Okay. Uh, I lived in a different apartment across town. Okay. So this was purely meant for investment and you decided to rent to students. That that could go one of many different ways. So how did it go? Well, it went well in terms of cash flow. I got pretty good money and I always managed to keep good occupancy because there's such a demand for student housing in the area. And because these were rooms, they were cheaper than apartments. Mm -hmm. So students like that. Um, the challenge was all the common areas. And and this was something that I had no experience with, but if you can imagine seven people sharing a kitchen and two bathrooms, you can kind of get an idea of. Well, I actually can imagine that because my daughter is going to San Diego state and has rented a room or a house with seven bedrooms. So seven girls Ah. in a house in one kitchen and, and just three bathrooms. So uh, let's just say I didn't stay there when I would go to visit her in San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, surprisingly, most of the parents were not too involved when I would mm-hmm. do the application process. Wow. Uh, surprisingly, I would think the parents would really want to know where their kids were, but, you know, occasionally they would be. Oh, um, amazing. But I did get the parents to give a financial responsibility statement, oftentimes. So when you're dealing with students, they don't have credit and they don't have any real history. So it's kind of hard to gauge who can pay and who can't, especially if they're working odd jobs. So if they would tell me that their parents would pay rent, I would then contact the parents and say, hey, you know, give me a statement. Give me something in writing saying you take financial responsibility. And it worked. 
Wonderful. So what did you do next? So after that, well, actually kind of simultaneous with that, I bought a couple more rental properties in Florida at the worst possible time. It was around 2006. So oh were, boy, right at the peak. Yeah, exactly, right at the peak. And then within you know a year or two, they completely crashed and foreclosures and, and the whole nine yards there that we're all too <laughs> familiar with. One of the and, big learning lessons of that downturn. Well, an interesting learning lesson was that Florida is a judicial state, so they don't automatically forgive debt like we take for granted here in California. Mm -hmm. So if your house is or condo or whatever the case may be, if it's underwater, you're on the hook for the difference between what they sell it for and the rest of the loan. So let's be really clear. When you say underwater in Florida, we're not talking about any hurricanes or storms, <laughs> right. talking about the mortgage. So if you, let's say at the time, you know, you could probably buy a condo for no money down, buy a $200,000 condo, it's worth 100000 a year later, you short sell it for that. In the $100,000 difference, you still have to pay in Florida. Right. So if it's worth 100000 a year later and your loan is one hundred and fifty, for example, then the bank takes it, they sell it for a hundred and they say, Hey, you still owe us 50,000. Yep. A lot of States are like that. Uh, that happened to us in Tennessee and it's there quite unfortunate, go. but it makes sense. I mean, you know, you're taking on the debt, someone had to pay it. And that's, you know, what's not fair is that the banks often will just create that money out of thin air and lend it to you. And then you right. got to pay it back, but right. it's a one way. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you, you were foreclosed on, on those properties. Yeah. Um, if you're interested, one of them I, I ended up getting back, but that I had a really strange experience with. This was a condo that got quote unquote terminated. And I didn't even think this was possible. But <laughs> a developer came in and this was a large multi-unit complex, maybe like two, 300 units in the complex. And there was one owner that owned over a hundred. And it was never an issue until that owner sold all those hundred plus units to a developer. And the developer wanted to convert the whole condo complex back into an apartment building. Okay. So our HOA- That's so funny. That happened to us in Nashville too. Yeah. It used to be you take an apartment and do a condo conversion, turn everything into condos. But back then they were taking the condos and converting them back to apartments. And and you, you would think you have a a deed, right? You have title on your property. No one can make you sell it Mm -hmm. or convert it into an apartment or whatever. So I I thought, no, this can't be legal. And most of the other owners felt the same way, but this development company was in cahoots with one of the top attorneys in the state for uh, condo conversions. And they just started going strictly by the book and saying that it was a distressed property and they argue that because it's distressed, there's some obscure law in Florida. And, and long story short, at the end of the day, they ended up forcing every single owner in that complex to sell their condo to the developer. Wow. Yeah, that, it was similar in Tennessee where a buyer came in and bought as many units as they could and turned them into uh, you know, the apartment. But if you wow. didn't want to sell, you could still you know, own it as a condo. They didn't force people to convert, but a lot of people did sell, but you, you, uh, you were forced to. 
we were forced. Oh, wow. And it would go to court. Like if we didn't, if we said no, then we would wind up before a judge and still get forced. And surprisingly, for people who had, um, you know, it was their primary residence, even them. I mean, most of these were rentals that had, you know, out of state investors, but even the people who lived there were still forced to sell. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why, you know, I'm not a big fan of buying condos as rentals. I mean, it just, of course, every, every place is different and, uh, but you've got HOA and you're dealing, you know, basically a condo and an HOA means that you have partners, you know, whether you like it or not, you, you have partners in that HOA and how that building is run is, is decided by a whole bunch of different owners and they can fight a lot. So it, it can be a big headache. Um, it, partnerships are difficult no matter what. So I'm not a huge fan of condos. Some cities, that's all you can really afford sometimes. I still don't like them because then people also don't add in the cost of the HOA, which really makes the cash flow sometimes not as good as a single family. Yeah. And then what about, you know, if there's a repair that needs to be done and they have to do a special assessment? Oh, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine right now is going through that at his complex. And it sounds like they didn't have the reserve because the HOA is asking for every owner to pony up, I think it's like 10 grand in special yeah. assessments for a new roof. It's pretty common because basically you've got, nobody wants to be on the HOA board. So you've got people who, you know, someone's got to do it. And that person is making the financial decisions for the entire group, yet most people don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, Rich and I were on the board of an HOA of a, a condo that we owned a couple of years ago. And because we were on the board, we found out what was really going on and we sold out so fast <laughs> And because we knew the assessment was coming. Now, of course, we had to disclose all of that in the sale and we were still right. able to sell. But, um, but we knew. And then sure enough, the assessment came and, and you know, values are dropping because not everybody can afford to pay those assessments. That's the thing is not everybody, not all owners are in a financial position to be able to do that, but they have to. And if they're not paying and they're behind, they can lose the property to someone who can, who can pay those HOA fees. Or a bank. Or yeah, a bank. Um, I, I have, there are many reasons to be cautious of buying a condo, I have mm. to say. And like what you mentioned, I think of HOAs as a group of people with no business experience running a business. Running a business, making financial decisions for the other right. owners who don't care but want somebody to make good decisions, but they usually don't. And when they find out, then they're real mad, but it's really their own fault for not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I recommend most people who do get condos to get on the board. Um, yes. If not to find out exactly what's going on, like you mentioned, but at least to kind of get in good with the HOA people and the president and, and secretary and so on, just so that they're less likely to take a, a strong action against you if something were to happen. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, also, if you're on the board, yeah, you can be sued if yep. decisions are made that hurt the other owners. And I hear we were on this board thinking nobody is agreeing with how we think this should go, but they want it to go a different way, which is going to be very detrimental. So they're going to force us to do this thing we know isn't right, but then they're going to sue us for it not going well. So we're like, <laughs> well, no, we're selling. We're out. That's a lose-lose <laughs> proposition right, right. there. <laughs> You know, another interesting note with uh, HOAs in Florida is that I just sold a condo hotel that I had there. It was a single unit I got for a pretty 
cheap price. Now, this is a condo that's in a hotel with privately owned units. So it's run like a hotel, mm -hmm. but individual owners own the individual units. Yes. Yep. And it turns out that the board has its own management company that they want everyone to join that would kind of handle all the bookings and place people in the rooms and kind of have some services that they offer. But it's really a ripoff because if you look at the numbers and the occupancy throughout the year, the amount of money that you end up paying for that management service is more than you end up making in profit. And it's just, it's just a losing proposition. I talked to an owner that had one of the units for five years, never made any money. Wow. So what's interesting is that people have gone offline and they've started renting on their own without being part of that central management. And what I found out, because I did that actually with my own, you know, you run your own ad on Airbnb and VRBO. So I did that, but they really try to discourage it and they try to intimidate you because they want you to join their management, which makes all the money, um, not for you. And it turns out it's a law in Florida, as I understand it, don't quote me on this, but that they cannot prevent you from renting your own unit. So they understand that legally they can't stop you from doing it, but they do everything in their ability to try to discourage you. So they'll try to say like your uh, guests don't get free breakfast from the cafeteria or they can't use the shuttle or, or they'll try to say you can't use the gym or something like that to try to keep you from doing it. Yeah, you, you just got to be really aware that if you buy a unit in a building, you have a bunch of other owners in one building and things could get complicated and they often do. Um, I've seen people try to sell off units in an apartment, you know, just like, oh boy, do you really want to have this many people with different personalities and different agendas and just get a single family home. You know, you're not going to pay that much more with today's rates. You're on your own. You don't have to deal with anyone or a one to four unit or, you know, an apartment. But if you're going to get into an apartment, it's going to take more money and you might have to have partners and you've just got to really weigh the pros and the cons of that. Because some people will buy, uh, will, will bring in partners, but by, by the time they divvy everything up, they might've been better off just you know, doing it on their own with something smaller. It just depends. It just depends. So tell me where you are today. You've invested in Florida, Georgia, Missouri, Arizona, and California. Are you now a full-time investor? And you know, what yep. has worked for you? I am a full-time investor, and I put that on my IRS tax return and saved quite a bit of money as a result. Mm, isn't that lovely? Of being a real estate professional, as they call it. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, I now have commercial property, which is a whole different animal, um, a couple retail commercial properties. And um, I have more properties in California. I've really tried to get rid of some of the trouble properties out of state. One of the biggest problems I had was in Kansas City. I think you might have some experience there. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I sold off a couple properties there, but I do have a multi-unit, a four-unit, and I have a multi-unit in Atlanta. And uh, what else? I have I think like five single family homes in California. One of them's a condo, actually. 
Wonderful. Congratulations. I'd love to hear. Are you still doing anything tech related or are you just focusing on your real estate? No, I gave up on that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I remember what I, what I used to do anyway. I, I, I would have a hard time going back. One of the reasons I left tech is because I got really tired of being isolated in a cubicle with gray walls and fluorescent lights for, you know, more than eight hours a day, 10 plus hours a day, every day in the same spot. And real estate is a lot more social. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy that. I, I enjoy going to meetups and meeting people and yeah. networking. Absolutely. So here's the catch 22. When you live in, in the San Francisco Bay area, you can make a pretty good income in the, in the tech world, like a really good income. But then the expenses are so high, it's kind of hard to get ahead and buy that first piece of property. So how did you, how were you able to make that happen? I mean, I, I understand you got that first house. Um, did you save money? Did you like, where did you come up with the money to buy more real estate? So yeah, that the way I, I got into it, I did have that problem. I was working so many hours that I just didn't have time to pursue anything else outside. Mm-hmm. Of right. But like I mentioned, my father had pressured me into getting <laughs> property, which I did. Got to love your dad for that and you for, for listening to him. Right. It's true. At the end you know, the I just have to say on a side note, my daughter is so cute. She just came to me today. She came home from, from college and I said, you know, mom, the older I get, and she's only 21, the more I realize I probably should listen to you more. In fact, I want to hear everything you have to say because I'm starting to realize you might be right. <laughs> that really made my day. That's great. She's kind of coming to that realization. <laughs> it was really cute because like a year ago, she'd just laugh at me. I go, oh, mom. Anyway, I did that. Going out of the rebellious teens, maybe. Right. Right. So so I got the rooming house and I was still working full time while I was managing that. So that was how I got my start. And probably what did it for me wasn't the cash flow, but the appreciation because that property I bought for 200 and around 250, 225 back in uh, the late 90s. Mm. And when I sold it, or over the years, it just appreciated, but I ultimately sold it for 760000 Nice. So See, I that's... made more. Yeah, I mean, I made a lot more in appreciation than I ever did in cash flow. And I made good money in cash flow, you know, four to 5000 a month. But yeah. what I ended up doing was taking out equity lines on that property and then using that to then buy another property and then just building equity on that property and... So it was really an equity appreciation kind of progression that I had. This is so important because a lot of people, now it only works when you're in a market like California that has has bouts of massive appreciation um, and you need to to buy the property when it's at the beginning of that and not the end. But what so many people don't realize who bought their property five or 10 years ago in California and they they think they're cash flowing today, because like you said, if you bought five or 10 years ago, you were really cash flowing then. And, and so people are still thinking in those terms, whereas the property may have tripled in value. So the piece they're not seeing is they could triple their cash flow if they put that equity to use somewhere else. It's just sitting there doing nothing. Absolutely. Making the same amount of money that, like, again, let's say you paid four, maybe three or 400,000 for it then, and it's bringing in 3,000 a month. That's Pretty good for California, but now if it's worth six hundred or seven hundred thousand dollars, you're not getting a very good return on on equity, maybe on purchase price. So I do challenge people who are from California or have seen their properties increase to really look at today's value and determine if you would buy that today if it's generating enough cash flow 
based on today's value, or if it would make more sense to either take the equity out and invest it somewhere else because money's so cheap to borrow right now, or sell it and uh, buy somewhere else where you can double, triple, maybe even quadruple your cash flow. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my model was just basically pulling the equity out, buying another property, renting that, and then pulling equity out of that property. Now you've got two appreciating properties, and then you can just keep going like that, is assuming they keep appreciating, pull equity yeah. out. But you know, the challenge is that you do have to have the cash flow to support the equity draw on the property. If you go to a bank, they're going to want to see that you can afford to pay down your, your loan. But you know, there's ways to to kind of work with that. I mean, I did actually manage to find a bank that gave a, uh, believe it or not, a stated income equity line. So that was helpful. Wow. So when you were building this portfolio, did you set goals as to how much cash flow you would need to generate in order to be able to be a full-time investor and quit your job? You know, I got to admit, uh, that is probably one of my biggest weaknesses that I never really did have a clear cut designated path that I was trying to follow and a long term game plan. I, I just had a lot of fires that I was putting out along the way and I would get very preoccupied with trying to fix things that were going wrong. I mean, I, I just had a general concept of getting more properties is good and getting everything rented is good. But I really didn't look at the numbers as much as I should have. Yeah, but you still ended up where you are. I did. I did. <laughs> so it, it ultimately worked. It was just a little rocky. I, mm-hmm. I think it's smart to have a game plan and to yeah. reevaluate and, and look at your numbers, your profit and loss, and see what, what works and what doesn't. I mean, one good example is this condo that I have in Vallejo that I'm not too worried about because I literally bought it for 34 5,000, I think. Wow. And yeah, this was right after the housing crash, like around 2010 or nine. And um, so I, I rented it out ever since I've kept it. I never really paid much attention to how it was performing until I was doing my taxes about a year ago. And I said, I wonder how much net I, I grossed for the year. And I, I think I made about $2,000 for the whole year on that property after you know, subtracting all the expenses. So right. like almost nothing. Yeah. But it's worth 150,000. So that's good. That's great. But cash flow wise, I mean, and I would I really wasn't paying attention to that. And I really should have because there's just very little cash flow, if any. Yeah, it is uh, amazing what happens when you really dig into the numbers. And I, I mean, all the numbers, like we bought a house right after the fires, like I think the day oh. after, and we knew that in the Chico area, 14,000 structures were burned and that there would be demand for housing. So we, we bought a house the next day and were able to rent it for like a 10 cap. I mean, it was, it was crazy, like how much money we were making from this. But by the time we sold and had to pay, you know, the acquisition fees, the sales fees when we sold it, and a couple of repairs along the way, we ended up with about a six or 7% return. And we could have literally invested in one of our own uh, right. Money lending funds and made more, you know, so not having to work that hard with no work whatsoever, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it is interesting when you really dig into the numbers, and and then you know, I look at the property I've had in Cleveland where we paid fifty five thousand. It's rented to the same tenant for six years now, and has at least doubled in value. Hmm. And um, that one, that one's done real well. Yeah, 
And that's a pretty straightforward scenario, it sounds to me, where you have the same house, the same renter, you know, probably the same average expenses, cleaning mm-hmm. and maintenance kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I can actually give you an example of what turned out to be a really surprising revelation of expenses with that. <laughs> yes, please. Going back to Florida again, <laughs> <laughs> my favorite uh, story here, uh, the condo in the hotel that I had, I did end up renting out myself because uh, obviously I made better money than using the in-house management. But the sheer volume of expenses was, it was so overwhelming in terms of keeping track of them and, and how much I ended up losing. So for example, I had property tax I had to pay. I had insurance, of course. The HOA, which was not cheap, it was close to 500 a month. I also had to have a business license for the city of Orlando, because technically I'm running a business by renting that property out. I had a hotel tax that I had to pay. Uh, The tenants in order to get, or the guests, that is, in order for the guests to book the room conveniently, I needed to have a merchant account so that they could charge their, you know, their payments on on a card. And so the merchant account itself had merchant fees. Um, I had a management company, which I thought was great. Actually, I still do. It's called Evolve. And what they do is they book for you all the bookings on VRBO and Airbnb and uh, TripAdvisor and all of them. And they actually come out and take pictures and they write the ads for you and everything for 10% off the top, which is great. But they don't go to the property and clean it between guests. So I had to have an on-site crew that would do the meet and greet, take keys, solve issues with guests and do the cleaning. And then I had all the supplies I had to buy, you know, talking about towels and tea packages and sugar and soap and stuff like that. Repairs. That's probably most of it. But the the on-site management company had their own monthly charge on top of, you know, fees for going to the store and buying stuff. And taxes is a nightmare when, when I'm doing this. So at the end of the day, when I added them all up, I was making like almost nothing for all that work that I had to do. So <laughs> I finally just said, I'm getting rid of it. And I got rid of it at the end of 2019, thank God, just before COVID, because Florida put an outright ban on vacation rentals for a while there. So Oh, boy. Yep. Always an exciting lessons. And that's why I stick with pretty basic stuff, you know, just homes that people need to live in and areas where there's a shortage of them. Um, But with that, um, I would just like to say, what's a tip you would give to a new or experienced investor with all that you've learned through these years? Okay. Well, I would say if you're going to get a rental property, you really have to vet out the management company well. Yes. And not just take the word for it from a friend or someone else who's using them, but really do your own due diligence. Very, very true. Yes. And we do have a list of questions you can ask the property manager on our website at realwealthshow.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Paul. I really appreciate the inspiration you're giving people to realize you can make some mistakes and still end up a full-time passive real estate investor and leave your day job. (laughs) That's true. Thank you, Kathy. It's really been fun. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can listen to this and any past episodes at realwealthshow.com. And while you're there, check out the free webinar series we just did on asset protection. 
Plus, we also have data on the cities we think will have the best cash flow and appreciation over the coming decade. Again, that's realwealthshow.com.